Okay, we're going to uh, <clears throat> turn to 1 Corinthians. The uh, uh, topic for the sessions is uh, actually 1 Corinthians 13, uh, but this morning I'm going to uh, uh, seek to give you a little bit of context for uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, so we're going to be looking at uh, 12, 13, and 14, get a little bit of overview of, of those uh, chapters uh, so we can uh, begin to see uh, how 1 Corinthians 13 fits into uh, this section of uh, Paul's letter to the uh, Corinthians. Uh, so let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the day that you've been pleased to give us. You're good and gracious to us in every respect. We thank you and praise you that this is the case. Uh, we're glad that uh, we have the privilege of uh, coming together as your people and uh, we look forward to worship together uh, as a congregation. And uh, as we are together now for uh, this short uh, time to uh, study your word, uh, we pray that you'll uh, give us grace and understanding. Uh, come to us uh, by the power of your spirit to enlighten our minds and uh, shine in our hearts, that we might better know you and have your love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. So be pleased to bless us to this end we ask and give us your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The class I'm calling Christian Affections, and really that title comes from Jonathan Edwards and his idea of the affections that God gives us in our hearts as an evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit working in us. And as the Apostle Paul lays this section of Scripture before us, I think his chief objective is for us to understand the primary manifestations of the Spirit and the primary evidences of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And I think, I'm hopeful at least, that as we go through the study that this will emerge. And so there's a question that's in the background of our study. And the question is, and I have this written uh, in the margin of my Bible at uh, 1 Corinthians 12.1. What is the better evidence of the presence of the uh, Spirit uh, in your life? What is the uh, better evidence? See, that, that would be the first question. What is the better evidence of the presence of the Spirit? And then I have a, a second question uh, that goes along with this. What is the best 
evidence of the presence of the Spirit in your life. Now, uh, the Corinthians, you see, are bearing down, and I think you'll see this as we go through uh, this section, uh, the Corinthians are bearing down on the manifestation of the Spirit in uh, the speaking of tongues. And uh, I hold that the tongues that Paul is speaking about here are other languages. And uh, I'm hopeful this will emerge also uh, as uh, we, we uh, go through this section. And uh, so the basic qu- questions are these. Uh, what is the better evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer? And what is the best evidence of the presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer? All right? So these questions are in the background. And, and as we go through uh, the text, uh, I'll be referring on occasion back uh, to these questions uh, because I think uh, it's important for us to have uh, this in mind. Now, uh, 1 Corinthians tr- uh, chapter 12 uh, begins uh, with this statement uh, in the English Standard Version. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. And uh, the word that's translated spiritual gifts, uh, you may have in the margin of your Bible uh, a little bit different translation. Some uh, uh, Bibles... Uh, say, uh, spiritual things or spiritual persons. And I think the better translation is actually uh, spiritual things, spiritual matters. Now, concerning things of the Spirit, uh, concerning spiritual matters, this is the big heading over 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Paul is launching into a discussion of Spiritual matters, all right? And uh, uh, already you can see in the background these questions that, that I've raised. What's the best evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, in a person's life? Uh, so this, this is how he uh, begins. Now, if you go to the end of uh, chapter 12, in uh, uh, verse 31, uh, Paul says, but desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. Now, the word gifts here is uh, the word charismata. All right? Uh, and, and this is where we get the, the idea of the charismatic gifts. And uh, where uh, some denominations would call themselves charismatics. All right? Because they. Uh, have a high view of the spiritual gifts. So this is the idea. But earnestly the desire, uh, the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now here the question is in the background again. How is it that we discern the presence of the Holy Spirit? What's the best way? And so now Paul, after rehearsing some things about uh, the gifts, he says, I'm going to show you uh, a more excellent way. Uh, Now we come to 1 Corinthians 13, right? Uh, uh, But uh, pass over uh, uh, chapter 13 for the moment and go to the beginning of chapter 14. Uh, 
And uh, notice what uh, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. See? Same thing that he says at the end of uh, chapter 12. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. <clears throat> earnestly desire the gifts, right? What this is indicating to you and to me is this, that uh, Paul in uh, chapter 14 and verse 1 is continuing his uh, exposition in chapter 14. He, he leaves off uh, what he's saying at the end of chapter 12 and then at the beginning of chapter 14, he continues on. And chapter 13, it turns out, is a little excursus, a little discussion that Paul interjects into the overall exposition that he's going through in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And this means that he's kind of highlighting what he has to say in, in chapter 13, uh, that it has some significance. And it's as though he's bracketing chapter 13 with these two other chapters, chapter 12 and chapter uh, 14, uh, in order to uh, highlight uh, in the center uh, chapter 13, which has to do with love. And see, now again, this question in the background, what's the best way uh, what's the best evidence for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer? Well, uh, in the end, what Paul is saying, the best evidence for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is love. Okay. All of these other things notwithstanding, the best evidence is love. And uh, what we're going to see as we go through uh, the exposition in chapter 13 is that, uh, as Paul says in, uh, let's see, uh, in 13.8, uh, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. In other words, these special gifts like uh, speaking in tongues ecstatically uh, would be the emphasis, or prophesying, uh, ha having a special spirit of prophecy, and or uh, receiving special revelations. Uh, the time for these things will pass away. What remains? Love remains. Right. So, so here's the question in the background. What's the best evidence? The best evidence for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life is love. And another question then arises that we'll have to deal with when we get into 1 Corinthians 13 more fully is, when, when do these special gifts of tongues and prophecy and knowledge cease? And uh, the position I'm going to take, uh, just giving you a little warning here, uh, the position I'm going to take is uh, that these special gifts cease at uh, basically at the end of the apostolic age uh, when uh, the K 
canon of Scripture is complete, and we have the full Word of God. That's the position I'm going to, going to be taking. All right? So, just giving you a heads up on this. Now, uh, this, this is a minority report. Okay? And uh, I've been criticized for this because, uh, there you go again, Denny, you're taking a minority position. Okay, I admit it. <laughs> uh, uh, the majority report is that these things cease when the perfect comes, that is, when Christ comes a second time in glory. And what this would mean then is that tongues and prophecy and special knowledge remain normative in the present age. All right? You follow me? And if this is the case, you and I are wrong with regard to how we conduct our worship services. So just giving you a little heads up on, on how all of this falls out. Okay? So, and now I want to go back to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 12 and uh, just briefly work through uh, what Paul has to say here. Now concerning spiritual matters, see this is how I'm translating it, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Uh, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Uh, uh, a little irony here. Idols have no voices. They cannot speak. And what Paul is getting to is, see, these speaking gifts, tongues and prophecy. See, this is, this is what he winds up bearing down on. And uh, so a little irony here. You were uh, led astray to mute idols. Some of the translations uh, speak of dumb idols. And uh, th this is the idea. A person who is dumb uh, cannot speak. Uh, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking, see, uh, again, the little contrast there, uh, in the Spirit of God or by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit. So the first spiritual matter uh, with which Paul concerns himself is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay. And uh, Paul is maintaining at the outset uh, that no one can truly say from the heart and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory except by the Holy Spirit. And the idea here is, of course, you remember uh, Romans uh, 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And in the context of Romans 10.9, the idea of the confession is that uh, Jehovah is Jesus. And uh, this is the idea here in this confession. Uh, Jehovah is Jesus. And uh, the, the language is actually reversed in, in uh, the Greek. The Lord is Jesus. Okay? Uh, God is Jesus. 
And this is the confession. And you can't say that confession. You don't believe that uh, Jesus is God incarnate, God come in the flesh, unless it's by the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul is saying. This is the great confession of Christianity. And this is the first spiritual matter with which Paul uh, concerns himself. And then he says, uh, verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given, uh, notice what he, Paul says here now, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one is given a uh, gift, a way in which the Spirit is manifested, a way in which the Spirit is shown. The, the question again, what is the best way that the Holy Spirit evidences Himself in the life of the believer? Well, now Paul is rehearsing some ways in which the Spirit evidences Himself in the lives of uh, believers. Uh, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. See, now now we're here, uh, these uh, speaking uh, gifts, right? Uh, in contrast to uh, the, the mute idol. The utterance of wisdom. To, the, uh, to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. Uh, to another, faith. Uh, to another, gifts of healings by the one Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability uh, to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. And so the gifts are distributed in the body in accordance with the will of God or in accordance with the will of the Spirit. Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members... You see, now Paul's shifting a little bit in what he has to say. Uh, the basic confession, Jesus is Lord. Uh, the, the variety of gifts given by the one Spirit uh, to each of the members of the body. And now he zeroes in on the body itself. Uh, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it, it is with Christ. For in one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. And the idea of baptism here is that we are united to the Spirit, uh, the one Spirit, and we're all made to partake of the one Spirit. And as a result, what are we? We are one body. This is the beauty of it. We're not, we're diverse members, but we are one body. We are linked inexorably to one another by the Holy Spirit. 
this is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Uh, and so going on, uh, verse 14, you see Paul now uh, amplifies this a little bit, a little bit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many members. It's one body, but many members. Uh, if the foot should say, because I am not the hand, it does not, uh, I do not belong to the body, that would make it, uh, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an ear, I do not belong to the body, uh, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Uh, if the whole body were an ear, uh, where would the sense be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged all the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, there would, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Why? Because we all partake of one spirit. We are, in essence, one. And so, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Well, it would be absolutely preposterous for me to say, I don't need you, foot. <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten here this morning. <laughs> we can't say that. Likewise, I can't say that I don't need certain ones of you. We're all together. We need one another. We are one body. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those on whose parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow a greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Paul is talking about how we dress in order to cover what he calls those unpresentable parts. We wouldn't go around naked and in an unseemly way. Uh, let's see, uh, verse 23, And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we stow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which uh, our more presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, uh, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is dishonored, all rejoice together. I uh, remember here just recently, Gordon Ketty uh, at uh, a pastor's uh, lunch uh, talking about uh, a great problem he had with a nerve in uh, uh, one of his fingers. And uh, he talked about how debilitating it was because it was just so painful and uh, it was just throbbing all the time. And, and 
uh, uh, some would kind of look askance at that, and, and then he said he finally found a doctor who, who ascertained what the exact problem was, and it was a very easy fix. <laughs> we always like that sort of thing. And uh, it, it was a huge relief because it was so uh, debilitating. And uh, we, we don't uh, understand that uh, uh, sort of thing until we experience it ourselves. And uh, so one, when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And every part of the body is of equal importance. And uh, when I was reviewing this, I, I thought to myself, you know, th this, is, this is so uh, uh, crucial for us to understand uh, because uh, many of these little children uh, that are in the congregation are so important to the congregation. And it's so important that we recognize uh, that they are part of the visible body and uh, that these children be nourished uh, so that they grow with an understanding of the Savior and grow up to uh, serve the Savior and become adults in the body of Christ and become leaders then in the body of Christ. Every member is crucial uh, in the body. And this is, this is, uh, a fact of the spirit. This is a spiritual matter that Paul is telling us. And, and Paul applies this to the Corinthians in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping uh, administer, administrating and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No. No. Every individual has a place in the body. And uh, this is what uh, Paul is, is uh, uh, telling us. And then he says, in verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I don't think actually in the earlier verses he's stipulating which are the higher gifts because all the gifts are necessary as a part of the body. And every one of you is a necessary part of this local body. Everyone, and every one of you has an important uh, part to contribute in the local body. And when you're not present in the local body, it's noticed, it's felt. This is what's so striking about it. And uh, uh, what Paul is going to get to here is uh, that it's a particular kind of speaking in the body that produces edification, that is growth in the body, that's really important. And this is what he wants to see. And that this kind of speaking needs to be enveloped with love. It's not just speaking on its own, but it's speaking that's enveloped 
with love. And as we get into 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see this. And so Paul says, I will show you a more excellent way. A way of what now? Of identifying the presence of the Spirit. Okay? Of identifying, of really identifying the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, skipping over uh, chapter 13 and going down to chapter 14, notice what he says here. Pursue love. This is, this is part of what, he, what he's after. And earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And now, uh, Paul is going to be making a distinction between prophecy and tongues, gifts of utterance. All right. Now, I've already said that this is part of what gets confusing in these chapters. I've already said that I'm taking the position that the special gifts cease when the Scriptures are complete when we have the perfection of Scripture. And this is one of the things I'm going to argue when we come back to get into 1 Corinthians 13. And so there's a sense in which what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 14 especially does not directly, directly apply to us. You follow me? It applies to the church at Corinth, but it doesn't directly apply to us because, uh, uh, as I'm maintaining, these special gifts have ceased. All right, but Paul has an important point to make uh, in uh, these texts. So, First Corinthians 14: Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, in just a little bit, I hope I'll be able to clarify this. But again, I'm taking the position that tongues refer to languages intelligible languages, languages that can be interpreted, languages that can be uh, translated. For example, on the day of Pentecost, what was the special manifestation of the Spirit? There were those in the assembly who spoke in several different languages, right? They spoke in tongues. And uh, people were astonished. And some in the crowd recognized the different languages. They spoke in the language of uh, the Cretans and others uh, that were there. And they marveled at this. Okay, And so, uh, I, I think this is the idea uh, as Paul comes to uh, 1 Corinthians 14. For the one who speak, uh, speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. In this sense, he speaks to God in a language that 
the people around him do not understand. So he's not really speaking to them, you see, because they don't understand what he's saying. I'll use this as an example. If you go to Japan and you sing the Psalms with the church in Japan, of course, they're singing in Japanese. And uh, they'll give you a Psalter uh, that has, uh, in English, the uh, uh, Japanese transliterated so you can sing in English uh, the phonics of the Japanese. And so you're singing in a foreign language and you have no idea what you're singing. <laughs> of course, unless you've memorized the psalm, you see. And actually, I don't think that practice is biblical from what Paul says. But the idea of the Japanese church is that they want those who visit with them from America to be able to join in their worship, you see. Uh, but, but this is getting at what Paul is, is talking about. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. In other words, those who are around him do not understand. But he utters mysteries in his spirit. What he says is a mystery to those who are around him. You see, this is, this is the idea. He may be full of the Spirit and speaks in a language he understands, but nobody around him understands it. Uh, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. You see, now if I were to come here and uh, conduct this class in German... There are only two or three people in the congregation who would understand the class. <laughs> the rest would not understand it. See, But if I conduct the class and teach in English, hopefully you understand, because you understand the language. You see, and this is what Paul is getting at. The one who speaks in a tongue upbuilds himself. See? I speak in a language I understand, so I understand it, and I'm edified by uh, what uh, I have to say because it comes from the Word of God, and uh, so I build up myself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. This is what's important, the building up of the body, the nourishing of the body. Now Paul says, now I want all to speak in tongues, but even more, to prophesy. You see, I'm glad. Uh, uh, do you know people that uh, know several different languages? Yeah. And that's great, isn't it? Because they can go into different cultures and, and intelligibly uh, speak with others. And that's a good thing. But uh, in this circumstance, that wouldn't be helpful. <laughs> You'd need a translator. Uh, to come along. Now I want all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless one interprets. And uh, you, you see, here's part of the point. 
The tongues are a language which are capable of being interpreted. This is the idea. And interpreted tongues, Paul comes down to say, are like prophecy, speaking in uh, forthrightly in the language uh, uh, that uh, everyone understands and everyone knows. And uh, the bottom line is the building up of the body. The building up of the body. Now, brothers, uh, verse uh, 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will it benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Now, if I came to you, uh, uh, as, as Paul could readily do, speaking in Greek, which I wouldn't do and wouldn't be capable of doing, uh, uh, how would it profit you? You see, that would be the idea. Well, it, 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 there would be very little profit. But being forthright as far as the English is concerned and at least seeking to uh, interpret what the Scriptures have to say, uh, there should be some profit. Uh, verse 7, If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or a harp, do not get, give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? See? Last night we had a very uh, lovely program and uh, 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 presentations on the violin and uh, presentations uh, on the piano and uh, very carefully arranged and uh, those who know music especially could especially appreciate uh, what was presented. It was intelligible uh, from uh, that perspective. And this is what uh, Paul is saying. Uh, verse 8, And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will, who will get ready for battle? Uh, in the morning, uh, the bugle, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, reveille. Uh, those in the service recognize the sound in the evening. Taps, do do do, do do do. See, recognize the sound. Uh, the sounds carry uh, a particular understanding, or a particular understanding is associated with the sounds. And this is what uh, Paul is saying, verse nine. So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? In other words, if uh, uh, someone comes into the congregation and utters speech which is not intelligible to those in the congregation, what profit is there to that? I think this is the idea uh, that Paul is giving one. How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. See, here we go again. See, the idea of tongues. Languages. There are many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the, to the speaker, 
and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. Since you are eager for there to be in your midst those things which display the presence of the Spirit. See, this would be the idea of manifestations of the Spirit. Strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. Do not strive to excel in puffing up yourself or in being noticed. That, that would be uh, the idea. Verse 13, uh, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Now, now you, you may think that that's a little uh, bit uh, quizzical, uh, the way Paul uh, puts this, but uh, think about it this way. Uh, those of you who especially are involved in the ESL program know that there are those who uh, come uh, into the congregation and uh, they have their own native language and they're learning to be able to put their own native language into English. And uh, Paul is pray, saying, pray, if you have, have uh, this ability to speak in a certain language, pray that you may be able to uh, put it into uh, the, the vernacular of the people who are present so that they can understand. It seems to me uh, that this would be uh, the idea. Uh, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. See? Now, now here's another sentence that, that we may say, I don't quite get what Paul is, is driving at here. See? I would put it this way. Uh, some of you have said to your children uh, something like this. Before you open your mouth, engage your mind. Don't be talking and saying a bunch of things without thinking about it first, without engaging your mind. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. It's very easy for us to rattle things off uh, without thinking them through, uh, without our mind being unfruitful. And what does Paul want? Paul wants fruit within the congregation. Paul wants things to be spoken purposefully so that fruit is born in the congregation. See, this is the idea. And when Pastor James speaks in the congregation, he's not just speaking for his own edification. He wants to see fruit born in your life and in my life. So this would be a part of... Uh, the idea. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. See, this would could often be the case. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will be intentional about these things. Now, see, don't go in the direction. See, I, I would warn you here. Uh, don't go in the direction of saying, well, my spirit can operate 
and be disconnected from my mind. It's as though I can disconnect my hand from my mind. <laughs> you see, that's impossible. You can't disconnect one part of your being from another part of your being. We're whole. We're complete beings. We're one. And we can't dismember ourselves in this this way. So, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. You could translate it, and I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. That is, I will engage my thinking apparatus. I'll challenge you here now. In this way, I know none of you have ever done this. You've been singing the psalms in the congregation and singing the words, and your mind is off somewhere else. You're not consciously engaged with the words of the psalm as you're singing the psalm. Am I correct? Have you ever done that? No. No. Okay. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone uh, in uh, the position of an outsider say amen? If you just rattle things off and speak in a tongue and it's unintelligible, how can people say amen to what you say if they do not understand it? How can they say amen to your thanksgivings uh, when he does not know uh, what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. They're not being built up because they do not understand. This is what Paul is getting at. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. See, being engaged so that he's fruitful. See, this would be the idea. To be fruitful in the congregation. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, Paul is quoting from Isaiah. And uh, we don't have time to go back uh, to the text in Isaiah. But the idea in the text in Isaiah is that uh, the children of Israel, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, have fallen into sin. And the Assyrians are going to come into the land and be in the midst of God's people. 
and this foreign language of the Assyrians will be spoken among God's people who are in rebellion and who are in unbelief. All right? You follow me? Okay. Verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. See, these tongues in the midst of the assembly of the Jews was highlighting their unbelief. That was the idea. The presence of these tongues was highlighting their rebellion and their unbelief. Thus tongues are a sign for believers, uh, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but believers. Now, this is a little cryptic, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to unravel it for you. But I think the best way to understand these uh, two pieces of Scripture is this. It's the question that I proposed at the beginning of the class. What is the best way for us to understand the manifestation of the Spirit? What's the best evidence I should put it this, of the presence of the Spirit in the midst of the congregation. Is it tongues? Paul says no. And he gives the example of ancient Israel. The presence of tongues highlighted their unbelief. This is the striking thing. And then Paul, uh, 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 skipping down to verse 23, says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will not they say, you are out of your minds? If they come in and they hear languages that they know are not understandable, what will they say? You people are crazy. <laughs> but if all prophesy, and Paul does not mean everybody speaking at once here, uh, and he makes this clear later, in turn, but if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. What is the better evidence 
for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Paul's quite clear here. The better evidence is prophecy. And he's weighing in against tongues. This is part of what's he, what he's doing. But now, see, go back to the end of verse, uh, of chapter 12. What does Paul say? But earnestly desire higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And at the beginning of chapter 14, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Pursue love. What does Paul come to in the center of his argument, which is the the point of emphasis? You see, Paul was a Hebrew. And very often... Uh, the Hebrews would argue this way, from the outside into the middle, rather than from the beginning to the end. We would, we would argue from the beginning to the end. Sometimes the Hebrews would argue from the outside into the middle. And this is what he's doing here. And so, uh, what is Paul in the end saying? Paul is saying, that the best evidence for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and in the midst of the church is love. You can have prophecy. He would say to the Corinthians. You can speak in tongues, he would say to the Corinthians. I wouldn't say that to you. You can have other gifts, but the best manifestation, the best evidence for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is love. And this is why we have 1 Corinthians 13 in this book of Corinthians. And it's set in contrast to all of these other manifestations of the Spirit. And if you don't get a lot of what we went through this morning, I would say, that's okay. The big picture is, Paul contrasts all of these other gifts with the priority of love, a priority of love. And so now what is Paul going to do in 1 Corinthians 13? Just look very briefly at it. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is going to contrast love with the various gifts that he's surrounded this chapter with. Then, in verses 4 through 7, Paul is going to define, or I'm sorry, he's not going to define, he's going to describe love. 
which means we are also going to have to define love, which we're going to do. And then he goes into a little excursus about how the special gifts that he talks about in chapter 12 and in chapter 14 cease and love remains. And if love remains, folks, love becomes the principal evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life. And that's what we're going to have to pursue in getting into the essence of 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank You for uh, Your Word. We pray that You'll be pleased to Bless us with a better understanding of it. And we pray that you'll give us your grace as we seek in our own families and in our congregation here to live this life of love that Paul describes for us in 1 Corinthians 13. Bless us to this end, we pray. In his good name, amen.